Hello everybody. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that today's episode is the second half of our interview with Professor Peter Hansen about assisted reproductive technologies, or ARTs, and its significant impact on the agricultural industry. If you missed part one, you can find it in our previous episode of the podcast. The following Future Conceive podcast is sponsored by the Virtual Education Committee of the Society for the Study of Reproduction with the mission to develop virtual programs that will aid in the education, highlighting the careers of society members, bringing technology updates and the latest scientific advancements in reproductive biology. Thank you for listening. Currently, we have a huge problem with the climate change. So can you tell us how heat stress climate change is affecting the success rate of ARTs? Yeah, uh, thank you for that question. I became interested in embryo transfer personally because I was hired specifically to study how heat stress affects reproduction of, of cattle and the embryo is very susceptible to elevated temperature, the mammalian embryo, not just the cow. So in cows, fertility drops dramatically in the summer, especially for lactating cows, because it, it's hard to think about this, but when you see that nice, gentle cow sitting in the barn, chewing your cud, you know, she is producing 50 kilograms of milk a day. <laughs> her metabolism is at the level of like a Tour de France racer. You know, her, her energetic demands are about four times what they would be if she wasn't lactating. So she's producing a tremendous amount of metabolic heat. So she can regulate her body temperature okay, but if it gets above 25 to 29 degrees centigrade, she can't lose all that heat to the environment and her body temperature goes up. So the dairy cow, more than many mammals, is very susceptible to heat stress. So milk yield goes down, which bothers people, and fertility drops. But it just turns out so fortuitous that you know the one-cell embryo, the newly formed embryo, it's very susceptible to elevated temperature. Same way for the two-cell embryo the four cell embryo. But after that, I don't know exactly where the breakpoint is, but by day three, embryo is pretty resistant to being in a mother that's experiencing hyperthermia. So if you do embryo transfer at day seven, when the embryo is a blastocyst, the pregnancy rate in the heat stress period is just about the same as it is in the cool period. So embryo transfer eliminates, not all, but most of the infertility associated with heat stress. So there's a lot of potential for using embryo transfer to improve pregnancy rates in the summer in cattle. It's not really used commercially mm-hmm. for a simple reason. You know, embryos are expensive. So 
even though you lose money because your cow doesn't get pregnant, maybe you lose more money by putting in an embryo. At least today, it's not cost effective to do embryo transfer in the summer, but if we could reduce the cost, which I think someday we will, but if we could reduce the cost, I think theoretically, if we reduce the cost, we could get rid of AI altogether and artificial insemination companies stop selling semen and they could start selling embryos. People probably think that's pie in the sky. Can I have a quick follow-up uh, follow question to that? Yes. Yeah, because what you mentioned, so is it uh, particularly for Bostorus or is, is it the same with Bost Indicus? No. Do you have any idea of difference or response between these two breeds? No, I, I would say biologically, there's a lot of genetic variation in thermal tolerance, and it's expressed at the whole animal level. Boss indicus can regulate their body temperature successfully when many boss tortoise can't. And it's also regulated at the level of the cell. So if you expose boss indicus embryos to elevated temperature, they're more resistant than boss taurus. So I think the, I mean, for sure, the boss syndicus is more thermal tolerant. But also there's another interesting thing, you know, most beef cattle operations, cows are either inseminated in the spring or they're inseminated in the fall. So usually they're not bred in the hottest time of the year. So even if they are sensitive to heat, they're, they're usually not, getting mated during that time. Whereas a dairy cow, depends on the country, but at least in the U.S., you know, every day a cow is getting inseminated, 365 days a year. So yeah, I think it's mainly a dairy cow problem, not a mm. beef cow problem. Peter, you mentioned previously that you can avoid the effects of heat stress by doing embryo transfer, but what about the fact that this means you then have to culture the embryo in vitro? Can you comment a bit about what we know of the effects that culture media has on embryos and on subsequent calf development? Yeah, that's another interest I have that I've kind of developed over time is, is how does what happens to that embryo in the cow for the first seven days of its existence, you know, from, it's a, from when it's a one cell embryo until it's a 150 cell blastocyst, how does that affect subsequent development, subsequent embryonic survival, but also the phenotype of the offspring. So we have a little bit of data, not enough to say that maybe there's some effects of being born by IVF on lifetime function after birth. Not a lot of data on that. We, we did one study where we saw that calves born by in vitro fertilization using sex semen, which we haven't talked about, produce a little bit less milk when they're cows than uh, cows produced by artificial insemination or by IVF not using sex semen. So, I mean, that would be a male effect maybe. And then we have a little bit of data not so much looking at the negative consequences of IVF on phenotype, but can we modify the culture environment and change the calf? 
So we've given colony stimulating factor two, the cytokine, and saw increased growth rate in the calves that were born from those embryos. And we're looking right now at the nutrient choline, which is a methyl donor, so it could play some role in programming the genome. And, you know, we're seeing more bigger calves at weaning if they were cultured with choline from the one cell stage to the blastocyst stage. So, you know, again, like thinking kind of pie in the sky, how do you make a better calf either genetically or you change its environment? You give it more nutrients, you protect it from disease, but all those things happen after birth. So why can't we modify the embryo when it's just 20 cells or 60 cells and program it like all the uh, doughhead people talk about and you know affect the health or the productivity of the offspring? So I have a big interest in that. I know one of the questions you were going to ask me is, what would I do differently? I would start those experiments about 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it took about three or four years to do so. <laughs> so that means there are a lot of challenges left related to those techniques. So you mentioned all those about media, uh, culture media, genetics, but can you tell us a little bit about that syndrome that we know as large offspring syndrome? So what about that one now? How this thing has been resolved or maybe no? How do we accept it? Yeah, I mean, it's horrifying to see it and it's a fascinating biological phenomenon at the same time. A small percentage of the calves born from IVF, I don't know what the percentage is, Transova or CMEX, I should say, uh, which produces embryos commercially, they estimate like one to 3% of the calves. I don't think we, we used to see quite a few of them and we don't see as many. Those large offspring calves have birth weights that are maybe twice as high as a normal birth weight. So putting in human terms, instead of being a seven pound baby, you're a 14 pound baby. So we had a calf over hundred kilograms at birth rather than like 50 kilograms. And those calves have a lot of phenotypic characteristics. There's variable pathological changes, but they have some characteristics kind of similar to Prater Willie babies have, you know, imprinting disorders. You know, they have the tongues that stick out, sometimes the hooves are curled. So we think that, you know, occasionally, really, we don't know why. Uh, some people tell you it's because of the presence of serum in the medium, but it occurs without serum. Occasionally, I think we totally dysregulate epigenetic control of development in, in those calves. And so they have really excessive muscular growth, swollen umbilicuses. We don't really know. Uh, Rocio Rivera at University of Missouri is doing a lot of work with these animals now to try to identify the specific genes that are dysregulated. But it's a bad thing when it, when it happens, for sure. It, the calf dies, 
almost always. And, you know, it can kill the cow. So it, it's something that fortunately doesn't occur that often, but I sure would like to find a way to make sure it never happens. You know, it's interesting biologically because <laughs> yeah. it points <laughs> out the importance of that early period of the embryo's life for yes. controlling, you know, major developmental systems later in life. And I'm sure some things like that probably happen in vivo. Rocio <laughs> has been at, has been studying this syndrome and just going around the U.S. talking about it. Veterinarians have come up to her and said they've seen large offspring born not from embryo transfer calves, but from calves born naturally or with AI. So she's been trying to collect some of those calves to see whether they have the same kind of epigenetic dysregulation as occurs with IVF. And I know in the sheep years ago, people could feed pregnant ewes, different levels of nutrition, and cause a syndrome where the fetuses were really large. And so I think what we're seeing in vitro with the embryo transfer is probably also occurring in vivo, but maybe much less frequently. You talked about uh, that we haven't really mentioned sex semen. Is there other ART technologies as well that we haven't discussed um, that are sort of commonly in use these days? Well, I mean, I guess the first one was castration. Sometime in biblical times, somebody figured out, hey, if I remove the testes, these animals stop trying to kill me, stop trying to mate with all the other females. And, but, you know, I'm not that facetious. I mean, that is true, I think. But, yeah, artificial insemination was the first in livestock and it's had the biggest impact, especially crowd preserve sperm, embryo transfer. Sex semen has been huge, has had a much bigger impact than embryo transfer, really. And also, sex semen became important when genomics developed because, you know, in the beef cattle industry, bulls are more valuable than heifers because the bulls get more when they go into the meat market than the heifers do. And cows last a long time. So you don't have to keep as many heifers around every year to replace the cows that are leaving the herd. But in the dairy industry, it stops that bulls are worth hardly anything because they don't produce milk. And almost nobody has a bull good enough to be used for breeding. And cows are kind of in fertile and kind of experience a lot of health problems that reduce their economic worth. So about 25 to 30% of the females are sold every year. So you need to produce lots of heifers every year to replace the heifers that are losing. So in the dairy industry, heifers are more valuable. In the beef industry, bulls are more valuable. Well, now that we have genomics, I can go into my herd and I can say, all right, I need 100 heifers this year. So I'm going to breed the top half of my herd to sex semen and get all the heifers I need. And then I'm going to take the bottom half of my herd and I'm going to breed them to beef bulls 
and produce beef calves that are more valuable than dairy calves for the beef market. And you're starting to see that happen a lot in the United States where, you know, before I, I wasn't really sure who was my best cow, but now I know at least genetically who's the best cow. So I want to breed her to a Holstein or a dairy bull so I get a nice, beautiful calf. But the ones that are on the bottom, if I breed them to a Angus bull and get a nice, beautiful beef calf, I'll be better off. Now, last year in Florida, if you were going to sell a baby bull calf, and they're usually raised for beef, you would get $10. <laughs> if that bull calf was half Angus, so that he was kind of a beef bull, you'd get $110. So, I mean, you know, the beef markets change and the dairy markets change, so that difference in price. But sex semen offers that opportunity for livestock producers to, to get the sex that's more valuable. Maximize your herd for sure. Yeah, especially with genomics combined with it. And then in the future, I think what people are dreaming about now and what Pablo Ross, who used to be at University of California, Davis, and now is at ST Genetics, a genetics company, you know, making gametes from stem cells. So if, if I can, if we can make gametes from stem cells, what Pablo has proposed, which is the most dramatic, is uh, to do all of our genetic selection in vitro. <laughs> so, you know, you could scrape some skin, I'm, I'm really exaggerating now, <laughs> scrape some skin cells off something, make induced pluripotent stem cells, make some of them go to become oocytes, some of them go to become sperm, produce embryos in vitro, do genomics on all the embryos, make stem cells from the best embryos, make oocytes and sperm from the best embryos, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, so that you could get, you know, 10 generations of selection in a fraction of the time it would take for uh, cows to produce calves and then produce adult animals that produce gametes to make the next generation. Will we get there? Maybe. You know, will we get there where it's cost effective? I don't know. But, you know, we have produced gametes from stem cells and rodents. And so if I had to guess, I'll say we're, we'll get there. That will be scary. Well, I, yeah, it will be scary. It will be, it could be transformative in terms of what, oh, yeah. what it's like yeah, being involved in animal production. And this kind of uh, advanced creativity is bringing me to the new technology, gene editing. What do you think about that? Do we have to be scared or should we be more hopeful about treating some new diseases or whatever it could be in this time of COVID? I'll tell you what we should be scared about as human beings is not assisted reproductive technology. We should be scared of genomics, right? Because theoretically, I could use genomics on newborn babies and figure out who should go to college. <laughs> you know, that's scary. 
I'd be totally against that. But I, I don't think the, the nightmare scenarios that people talk about you know, are not going to happen. The kind of genes that will get transferred are genes that are beneficial for the animal. And, you know, will there be off-target effects? It could happen, right? You could actually not only modify the gene you're interested in, but some gene you're not interested in modifying. But you can sequence the whole genome of the animals and the ones that have off-target um, mutations, you just don't propagate them. So I think the advantages of gene editing far outweigh any kind of, of fears that we might have. So, you know, I'm very much in favor of gene editing. Will the American population or the British population embrace it? I, I have a cynical view about that. Mm, difficult to say. I think you've already answered a little bit about what you wish you could have done differently. But also, if money was no object, what's the one big question you'd like to see answered in your lifetime? Yeah, that's a really good, you know, I'm always asking grad students that. If I gave you $2 million, how would you solve this problem? Or, uh, you know, what? the one thing I would do differently, which is really kind of addressed to my fellow animal scientists, just in terms of my own experimentation, I think when I was a grad student, I used to do experiments with four animals per group or six animals per group. Now I do experiments with 100 animals per group and I realized I don't have anywhere near enough animals to have a lot of confidence in my results sometimes that, you know, I didn't really know about power analysis when I was a grad student and I've kind of learned the hard way about it. The one thing I could do differently in my career, it would be to have access to just more and more animals. You know, if I, if I think I can improve the uterine environment and improve embryo survival by 10%, studying an animal like the cow that's monoovulatory, to see that 10% difference with 80% uh, power, 80% 80, 80 of the time, you know, I need like 300 animals per group. And I, I've never had that many. I think I'm going to... <laughs> this year because we're collaborating with some people. But that's the one thing I wish I could do over is have access to, to more animals. I know we're supposed to reduce, replace, you know. If you're not using enough animals, then you've sort of wasted those animals anyway. So there is, has to be a balance somewhere. And so if money that's was no object, I... that's what you do as well. Buy more cows. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I, you know, I've been looking, you sent me these questions, obviously, ahead of time. And I've been thinking about that one a lot because I thought, well, it would be bad to say, no, I'll do just what I'm doing because that doesn't sound very imaginative. In some ways, I would do just what I'm doing. If I, I think the idea of making artificial gametes would be something that, you know, could, shake the world. So that would be pretty compelling. Would I like spending my whole life looking at little cells in culture, hoping they're starting to look like sperm cells or oocytes? 
you know, I've done some stem cell work, mostly because my postdocs were interested in it. Yeah, it's it, it's not like personally thrilling. <laughs> but now maybe if I had sperm cells and oocytes coming from skin cells, that would be thrilling. But I think there'd be a lot of boring steps in the intervening part. But that would be one area where I think there's lots of opportunity. The other thing that interests me personally is genetics, to, to understand the genetic control of reproduction and the epigenetic control of reproduction. When I was a grad student back in the 70s, you know, we didn't even know all the genes. And genetics, as taught in an animal science department, was all quantitative genetics. The, how much of the variability in the traits controlled by genetics versus environment. That was pretty boring. But now that we really understand how genes work and interact with each other and change the phenotype of an individual, that would be something that I, you know, I'd actually do that a little bit. But if I was to start over today, I don't know, maybe I'd work on that. I haven't figured it out yet. I would say find a lab to work in that's productive, but also nurturing. So, because that's important, you know, because science can be really frustrating and defeating when things don't work. So it's, it's good to be in an environment where, you know, people support you. And like, I don't do anything at all like what I did when I was a grad student. So I'm still using the same principles of science, but you know, the details are much different. So I think it's important to learn the fundamentals of science, but not get hung up. Oh, I'm working in this. So, I'm, you know, you can change and, you know, learn how to do science the individual questions you're going to get interested in as your career develops, but learn how to do science. And then I would just, last thing, you know, techniques are super important, but of course they change all the time. So I think what's important is to learn how to learn how to do techniques. So you're not afraid of techniques because as life changes, you know, you can change with it, not be stuck in time. Well, Thank you, thank you very much, Professor Peter Hansen. And uh, Jane, thank you for being here with me to do these uh, podcasts. And uh, thank you everyone to joining us for this uh, highly informative uh, discussion. Thank you. Hey, thanks very much. I, I really enjoyed it. This music is produced by Buck Hills and the Peripel. Thank you.